0: going to invite you to turn in your New Testaments for the Scripture reading this morning, which is uh, should be up on the screen as I read it, and it is uh, Acts chapter 11, the second half of the passage, verses 19 to 30, entitled The Church at Antioch. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they went to Barnabas, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw that the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with all of their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living back in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. The Word of God. I'm coming to this text this morning through... uh, couple of realities that are on my plate and on your plates, um, particularly the first one. It is um, Simcoe Day weekend or the Civic Holiday. Um, uh, A few fun facts about this um, holiday. First of all, um, some of us remember that it was changed from Civic Holiday to Simcoe Day. A number of years ago, but many of us in 2005, many of us, or sorry, 1969, but many of us remember about 10 years ago or 11, 12 years ago, 2005, it was reaffirmed that this should be Simcoe Day. However, for Torontonians, it's kind of shocking to realize that actually the rest of the province doesn't technically call the day Simcoe Day, that actually Simcoe Day is actually a Toronto-centric thing and that other cities like Oshawa and Peterborough and other places around the province actually call the day whatever they want to call it, after their city founder or somebody else, an important leader um, in their their world. Who knew? Living in Toronto at the center of the universe like we are, um, we just assume these things. Civic holiday. Civic holiday was changed in 1969 to honor uh, Governor John Graves Simcoe and it, particularly his association with the act, uh, the first act to limit slavery in Upper Canada or the province of Ontario, 1795, I believe, during uh, Governor Simcoe's reign. And so, this idea of a civic holiday, an idea uh, where we're thinking about The privileges and the responsibilities of what it means to be a citizen in society, we think about Governor Simcoe and his sense of social justice. A few years later, Ontario would pass in 1833, a final abolition of slavery, which if you do your math and you know your history a little bit, is some 25 years before our friends in the United States had the most gruesome war in their history in order to fight over the place of slavery in their society. In the book of Acts, we're seeing the formation of what some people have called God's new society through Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we're asking ourselves, what does a good society look like in the book of Acts, this new society, even on a weekend when we are thinking about what a just society and a good society looks like in our culture and how we as God's people can participate in that. What does it mean to be God's new society? The other issue that doesn't have as much to do with you as it does with me is that surprisingly this past week, near the end of the week, I got received an email from my cousins in Ottawa, Dan and Kim. They are the children of my mom, one of my mom's younger brothers, my Uncle Bud. And to my surprise, in the, uh, in the email, they let me know that my uncle had passed away. Now, this, this is uh, a part of our family that live many, many miles away and, and seems like they live eons or ages uh, away. Um, We've been out of touch with them, except for periodically over the years. Um, We were connected with them when we were little um, because my parents uh, made the trip to Ottawa often to connect with our family. But as time has gone on, we've had very, very little connection with this family uh, in our extended family. The last time I saw my cousin Kim was when I officiated at her wedding some 17 or 18 years ago uh, down uh, near Ottawa and I haven't seen my cousin, Dan, who is just a couple of months uh, younger than me. Um, haven't seen Dan for probably around 30 years since he's lived most of his life, professional life, in Asia. Nor did I know that he had moved back to Canada in the last couple of years. We just haven't got our stuff together. And nor did I know that my uncle was sick. And nor did my mom know that my uncle was sick. So, dysfunctional family? Maybe but the distance maybe of contemporary life, geography, and the busyness, and you live in your own world. And, but the request in the email was, would I preside pastorally at my uncle's service? Now, I'm not gonna go into the details, but just to let you know, and you know that these things happen, you cannot believe that a request with six or seven days notice in Ottawa with all of our plans and the confluence of things that were going on in our lives in the midst of the summer, made it actually a a horrendous request for us personally, in terms of the dynamics of our schedule, would mean canceling events in this particular case, not being able to go to a wedding that we had planned uh, to go to, and it just goes on and on in the middle of our vacation, et cetera, et cetera, It took me three seconds to answer the email to say, yes, I would be privileged to preside at my uncle's service. Why? Because they're our family. Because for me, in some ways, to honor the memory of my grandparents, to honor the memory of my uncle who was amazing with kids, and who I, we have many, many memories, my sister and I as little kids and as teenagers at his cottage in the Ottawa area, and because we love our cousins, and because that's who we're called to be. So we rearranged things after we said yes, and canceled this, and shifted that, and made plans here, and a flurry of phone calls, and emails, and changes, kind of a crazy little half an hour of rescheduling, and. This coming Friday, this coming Thursday evening and Friday, we're in the Ottawa area in order to participate and remember my uncle's life together with my cousins Dan and Kim. What does it mean to be family? As the story of the book of Acts unfolds, questions like what does God's new society look like? What does God's family look like? What does it mean to be concerned and to be connected with people who are a long, long way away? I mean, to be honest, I know more about the details in the last 20 years of many of you here in my seven or eight years at Knox Church than I do of my cousins who I'm going to see this coming weekend. I know more about your children and your grandchildren, some of you, and their names, where they live, just about the things that you've gone through. Where you I don't even know where, where my cousins work anymore. Um, I'm assuming that uh, at least one of them is retired. So what does it mean to be a family? What does it mean to be God's new society? And in the story of the formation of the church in Antioch, we get a snapshot, a picture of what it might mean that God is building a new society, that God is forming a new family, a new community because people give their lives to Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. There's a few things, some details in this passage that I think are worthy of our attention. This place in the book of Acts represents a shift, and you heard it as the scripture was read, with Christian, the earliest Christians, the first Christians taking their ministry and their mission beyond Jews to other people. Antioch in this time was a Greek city primarily. Today in, in the modern world, it's a it's a Tur- it's a Turkish city um, named Antioch. And so a lot's changed, but there's a shift in the middle of the book of Acts, a shift towards ministry to Jews and mission. To non-Jews. And in this story, many, many Greek people, people who don't have that Jewish heritage, who don't have that that Old Testament story in their personal story, come to Jesus Christ. Not just a few, a whole bunch of them, it says. A kind of a a mini mass conversion looks like uh, to me when you look at the text. Second thing about this passage is that that conversion continues to mark the church, but not necessarily in the way of the Apostle Paul. What we have here is a picture of discipleship and conversion that comes through the nurture and the deepening of faith through Jesus Christ by the teaching of God's Word. And what we see here is that Barnabas is sent to do some work with these new Christians to figure out whether they're okay and to encourage them to carry on the faith. And then he goes and gets Paul, and it says, Luke emphasizes in writing this, for a whole year they spent deepening the faith of the Christians in Antioch. For a whole year they had this intensive discipleship ministry. Another aspect is that People were called Christians for the first time in Antioch. People were called little Christs in terms of how we understand our Christian history. That term Christian that we take for granted and that everybody takes for granted culturally was first used in Antioch surrounding this particular story. Other features of the story that are very, very important. There's a wonderful saying that that, that in terms of the conversion and the coming to faith of the church in Antioch and the ministry of Barnabas, there's that little phrase that the hand of God was on them. It doesn't explain the details, but it says that the hand of God was on them, and we're assuming by the results that that meant blessing that that meant newness of life, that that meant a fresh start, that that meant that God was pouring out God's goodness and God's mercy and opening the eyes of people to recognize the saving power of Jesus in their lives. It goes on to talk about Barnabas, a man who was a good man and who was filled with the Holy Spirit. And in the story of Acts, we're coming to see that Luke can't talk very much or very long about any particular thing when it comes to God's new family and God's new society, the church, without referencing, mentioning, and giving credit to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The dynamic of the story takes place after the coming of faith. The first dynamic is people come to faith and they're nurtured in the faith. And the second dynamic in the story is that a prophet comes to these people and we learn that they are spiritually sensitive. We learn that they hear about a prophecy about a famine that's going to happen. It, it is recorded in the Roman world that in the years 46 or 47 AD that a famine in did indeed did take place in the Roman world under the Emperor Claudius. And it's interesting that this, this dynamic that that Luke just kind of writes like it's normal life is that that these recent Christians who have been discipled for a year hear about this famine, recognize the impact of fellow Christians back in Jerusalem, and each person does a personal evaluation around their money and their resources and their food and they all make a choice to send resources back to Jeru- the Jerusalem church through the ministry of Barnabas and Paul, who have been their disciples, their pastors in this previous year. But here's the piece. They've never met these people. They're complete strangers. We think that the ethnic um, divides are significant in our culture and they still are shockingly and surprisingly significant in our culture even in North America. But in this time for this kind of cross-pollination, this kind of unity, this kind of friendship and relationship, this kind of generosity and communication between people from radically different ethnic groups is, is a wonderful and beautiful picture of what God seems to be doing in the world. Never met, don't know personally, have very little detail, completely different ethnic group, many, many miles away. And yet still they decide to become generous and and to participate in helping their friends, their brothers and sisters in Christ. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is making them a new family a new society, and their values, particularly their values around their wealth, are being challenged. Conversion we see through the book of Acts doesn't happen the same way with each person, and the other thing that we see about it is that conversion is never simply a change of worldviews. It's never simply a change of idea structure it is almost always comes with deep, profound social implications. It's not about me and Jesus and the success of my life. It's about us with Jesus and the blessing and helping of other people. It's really about the transformation of the world through a new family and a new society. These two realities seem to go hand in hand. You know, it's interesting. We're, we're coming to the communion in a few moments. We're going to share in the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. We're going to remember Jesus because we believe that this is a gift, a sacrament left to us, that when we participate in this meal, by remembering Jesus, our faith and our love and our hope are widened and deepened. In the various early century of the church, it looks like in the book of Acts, in Acts 2, after Pentecost, when the church gathers, there are a few characteristics of the early church that are mentioned, people paying attention to the teaching of the apostles, the scriptures, fellowship, the formation of a new community, radical sharing, communion, and prayer. And in those early years there was a very close connection between sharing in this meal and actually sharing food and bread with other people and something formed called the agape meal this is the the love feast if you want but by the second century what it looks like in the christian record of the church is that these two things got divided that the communion became sort of a more central feature of christian worship but the agape feast didn't go away. The agape feast developed into a meal in order to care for the poor in the community. And so the close approximation of celebrating Jesus as the bread of life and recognizing that Christians are called to share bread with those who are hungry is, are two realities that are intertwined together and profoundly in what it means to be God's people and the growth of the church. The Emperor Julian, who was the last non-Christian emperor in the Roman Empire, we're talking middle fourth century here. Julian the apostate, was his nickname, and Julian was a fervent opposer of the Christian movement. He, like a lot of Roman emperors before him, was worried that if Rome pulled too far away from their ancient Roman pagan religion, that the gods would not honor them, and that that would issue in the dissolution of Roman society. And so Julian was the last kick at the can on this. And he opposed Christians and the development of the Christian movement in all kinds of different ways, even up into the middle of the 4th century. But famously, he is quoted as saying this about Christians and about Jews and about food. He says, it is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg and when the impious Galileans, meaning Christians, support not only their own poor but our poor as well, all people see what our people lack. It's a letter written to pagan priests and the leadership saying, you people are practicing this religion and you are not caring about society. But we've got these two groups in our society, Jews, who in their tradition, interestingly, Julian was an expert, not only on the Roman culture, but on the Jewish world. He knew that in Jewish tradition, the poor were not supposed to go hungry. And then he also says, this new upstart group, these Christians, they're not only feeding their own people, they're feeding our people too. And they're winning the PR war when it comes to religious allegiance in the Roman Empire. You ask yourself, why did the the way of Jesus grow so rapidly against all odds in the Roman Empire, even prior to Constantine making it the official religion? Because Christians cared... For justice issues. They cared for people. They healed people. They prayed for people. They cared for people in times of the plagues. This is well documented that in the times of Rome during the plagues, the upper classes and the Roman society left, Christians stayed and cared for sick people in the middle of the plagues. And what Julian is saying is, it is downright embarrassing that our own Roman religion religious practices do not account for caring for hungry people and we're leaving that work to Jews and to Christians and they are gaining in popularity. And so this idea of connecting the sanctuary to the real needs of people on the street is something at the central fabric of the Christian faith. And these people discipled by Paul and Barnabas in Antioch, these Greeks, are taught so well to recognize that the bread of life and the bread that people eat themselves come together to make people distinctly Christian. And so is it any surprise that the term Christian was first used in Antioch? This is Luke writing. Luke, of course, is One of the themes of his gospel is a radical concern for the poor, and a radical concern for the poor in our discipleship. If you read Luke 18 and 19 together, there are two episodes in a parable, all of which tell the story of people who are struggling with their wealth coming to terms with Jesus. There's the story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus, and he wants to inherit eternal life. And what does Jesus say to him? He talks about obeying the law. The guy says, I've been obeying the law. And Jesus says, sell everything that you own and give it to the poor and come and follow me. Following in Luke 19 is the story of Zacchaeus, who Luke tells us was the chief tax collector, bad news in that society, not high reputation. A lot of suspicions surrounding the income sources of a tax collector, particularly the chief tax collector, you get it, shaving profits off the top. And Zacchaeus was, Luke tells us, a wealthy man. But he desperately wants to know Jesus. And Jesus comes to his house, which is outrageous. And the religious Jews go crazy when Jesus does this. And Zacchaeus says to Jesus, according to Luke's gospel, I've taken half of all my possessions and I've given them to the poor. And Jesus says, this is evidence of faith. This is evidence that God's kingdom is emerging in the life of this man. And so this connection between these two things is something that is held together. And our ancestors, those Greek Christians in Antioch who recognized the need of the famine and reached out, raise all kinds of questions for us in terms of what it means to be Christian, and distinctly so in our society. Remember Julian, taking care of their own and taking care of the rest of us as well. It's been my privilege for three decades to be associated with a large Christian-Canadian youth development organization whose central ministry takes place in Muskoka, which is, who knew this would happen, but it's the fancy upscale vacation land of wealthy Torontonians and others from around the world. This development in the last 30 years has affected our ministry in all kinds of ways that we didn't originally plan for or expect. But nevertheless, it's our reality that children of affluent Canadians and also affluent leaders around the world are coming to our ministry, particularly in the summer. About 10 or 12 years ago, one of the people in our community challenged us to ask the question, what does an economically privileged young person and disciple of Jesus Christ look like in our society? And so we started to ask that question. And when we asked that question, every year since, things have started to develop that don't seem like they fit actually with the economic group of people who are coming to our camp. We were offered an opportunity To disciple our oldest university students in in working with orphanages in Romania and that took off. For several years we invited the parents of our guests or campers not only to pay a large fee for their children to camp say for a week or two weeks at our camp but we also challenged them not only bring your sleeping bag for your own kid but bring a sleeping bag and toiletries and personal care products for a child, an orphan, in Romania. The first summer we did it, the response was so large, we had to hire a person in the midst of the program with the first week of the summer to come and to administer this thing because we received literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds each summer for several years, people not only paying to bring their kid to camp at this fancy camp in Muskoka, but also being open to bringing supplies for people that they had never met. Our sibling of cancer patients program, our autism re- outreach, our ministry with youth development and water in Africa, Our cooperation with youth ministry of kids primarily high school students in the inner city of toronto at-risk teens in order to help them to have an experience out of the city at camp why because an economically privileged disciple of jesus christ isn't a reality without feeding the world without caring for the church around the world without being present through your own resources in order to care for people that you've never met, that grew up in a completely different culture, and have a whole set of different realities and situations. What does this have to do for us? The Book of Acts is an amazing, amazing resource to help us to reflect today on how the Holy Spirit wants to grow our church, wants to disciple us, how the Spirit wants to take us deep in our heritage of who those first Christians were, abolition of slavery, orphans in Romania, youth development in Africa the scourge of autism in our society it goes on and on and on and what the holy spirit seems to be saying to us in our organization up north and also with the community of muskoka woods is that to follow jesus christ means to go deeper in the bread of life to go deeper in the world in the word to go deeper in worship and to go deeper in your openness and your participation in how God cares for the church and how God cares for the world. So I invite you to come to this table. Jesus invites you to come to this table so that you might become fed to grow deeper in faith and love and hope in Jesus Christ. And may the Holy Spirit take care of the results as we celebrate this time together. Let's pray together. We thank you, Lord God, for your word. We thank you for the heritage and the history that we have from these ancient Christians. We pray that you help us not to forget them easily, but we pray that their story and their faith and their commitment and their ministry would continue to flow over us each and every day in the days ahead. We thank you that you speak to us through their lives, through the record of their faith. And we pray that you would build us up in these words, and this gospel, and this ministry today. In Jesus' name, amen.